0: Welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week so you don't have to. And today I'm joined by my co hosts and colleagues, James and Hugh. So tell me, what has been on your minds this week?
1: On my mind this week, uh, I've done a couple of social posts about uh, feedback. I actually used uh, LinkedIn's new collaborative articles feature or had a look at it. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but yeah LinkedIn's inviting you to collaborate on these articles that it's put together so it's basically analyzed or I say analyzed it's, it's written down like loads of categories of like entrepreneurship and business management and HR and content creation and it's done all these different sections and then it's broken those down into topics and then it's broken the topics down into very various like paragraphs that con that make up those topics anyway it then it pinged it pinged me like a pinged bell it pinged a few people in our team right like oh do you want to collaborate to this thing so it asked me to collaborate on one uh last week about Vcs and brands so I wrote that and it asked me one this week about feedback and it was it's quite good actually because it, it goes down like how people should think about feedback and gave gave a few different prompts for stuff the bit that I ended up writing on was like I think as, as an entrepreneur, Feedback is a really funny and double edged sword because, on one hand, when you've got a business and you've got customers, feedback, of course, on your product is fabulous because it allows you to make improvements, it allows you to get better at what you do. And, of course, constructive feedback can do those things. If you're at the idea stage, however, where you're trying to think of something brand new, or you have thought of something brand new, feedback is certainly that double-edged sword. And the best way I've heard it described was, well, firstly, someone said, listen to it, but not all of it. So for for a pithy bit of uh, advice, that was really good. But I spoke to Hamza from Mindstep and he said on my podcast, and he said something amazing about this. He said, when you're at the idea stage and you've thought of something new and you're trying to communicate it to people, most of the time, people that are in a sector in which you've pitched your idea that's going to disrupt them or that's going to change the way that they do things they're immediately going to feel something potentially negative towards it they might not want it to work but so they they often lean into negative feedback or saying it won't work or saying it won't work because they've seen someone try it before it's not going to work they've tried it before it's not going to work here's another thousand reasons mm-hmm. it's not going to work now it's actually easier to say something's not going to work than to try and actually explore how it could but he said that what you got to think about is that respect those people for their opinion and respect the fact it is their opinion based on their experience based on their career based on their life based on the experiences that they've had but if they've said it won't work it won't work for them it didn't work for them it doesn't work with the way that they see the world. It doesn't work with the way that they think about things. You might just be thinking about something different and you might be thinking about it in a different way and that should give you confidence. Now, you can't be delusional. You, if, if literally everyone in a sector is giving you the same exact reason <laughs> for something not working, you probably should take that on board and explore it a little bit more if your assumption is being tested with uh, with that vigor. But I think the role of an entrepreneur is to consider every bit of feedback and decide what you actually listen to. I think that is the skill. I think that is the skill of the idea stage particularly, but even if, even if it's in a product setting or a service setting, you know, at Somex, like we have to think like, you know, with every, every bit of feedback, do we action it? Do we change it? Because you can't customize everything for everyone. And actually there's a cost associated with that customization. And also, uh, as I said in, in, in the, uh, the thing that I wrote, like, Sometimes some people give me feedback on my podcast, which I uh, just politely ignore and say, <laughs> it's probably just not for them. Not every bit of feedback is actionable. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been thinking about this week.
2: I love that. And it's, uh, I think it taps into that that old classic of that's the way we've always done things, doesn't it? Mm. And a lot of the feedback you're going to receive is going to be based on a way of doing things that is accepted, that is understood um, and that maybe isn't challenged as often as we we need it to be. I, I, I always think about feedback as really useful to consider. It's it's that sort of pipeline and funnel piece, isn't it? It's when you're just starting out, listen to every piece of feedback and use it to guide your strategy. If someone's going to tell you something's not working, it's not the, okay, well, that's not going to work, but why doesn't it work? What's the mm-hmm. yes if to make it work? And you know, something we do really well is that yes if piece, I think. but the further you get down the line, only listen to the negatives when at the right junctures and when it's powerful enough and when it's something you haven't maybe considered already.
0: One of the things that I, I've been thinking about this week, James, I've really reflected on that conversation we had about the story uh, regarding the how mobile phones could basically you listen to your audio, listen to your voice and detect whether or not you had been drinking. Um, but the kind of rabbit hole that we went into where we were talking about we basically interrogated the data and the research and we're having a conversation about you know should we be holding and should journals be holding researchers accountable for the diversity appropriately the diversity of their um, research cohorts and study cohorts and that kind of thing and it's it's just really stuck with me all week and you you raised such a good point about the fact that, um, you know, it's it's something that we're really mindful of where we consider events and spokespeople and that sort of thing. But actually, you know, there's almost even greater importance of that here. And I've been reading um, a book over the last couple of weeks, um, slowly but surely, it's called Divided by Dr. Annabelle Soamemo. And it's basically about what, like, where some of this, like, racism in medicine starts and that, you know, some of the questioning, some of the science behind uh, medicine and, you know, race science and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's really set me on a, a journey of reflection and, and consideration and split my brain open in a way that I was not expecting. I thought I knew and understood this space relatively well, but it's really opened my eyes to a lot that and like the the depth of history behind all of this stuff, colonialization and it's, and the influence that it has on medicine today. Um, so I'm, I won't give any spoilers and I'm only probably about a third of the way through, but I'm really enjoying reading it. It's such a valuable learning experience and really opening my eyes to, yeah, as I said, a subject that I thought I, I knew and understood and one that I already kind of enjoyed and was invested in. So it was really nice to have kind of all those things playing together and, and, being able to consider you know, the implications of what this book is saying and how that plays out in the work that we do and the companies we work with and the solutions and technologies and delivery of service and that kind of thing. It's really, really fascinating. I would definitely recommend recommend reading it to anyone who is interested in that topic or even not, I think probably even more so. If you're not interested in it, you should read it as a, a good book for you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because in medicine, when, when we're at medical school, when you're taught how to analyze studies, it's always look at the methods, always look at the method. Um, And I just wonder if now we've, we have entered that period where it's not only look at the method, but look at the sample because baked into look at the method it's look at the sample size and look at how applicable that is and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's where you're going to find most of your, your critiques across the method in general I wonder if now, though, we should be really looking at the sample and going, is that is that appropriately diverse? Is that appropriately this? Is that appropriately that? And actually, um, as you say, putting that accountability onto the journals that have published it and actually starting there. Because if you can change the assessment, you can change what gets through that assessment. And actually then it changes the way people then conduct those studies, knowing that that's an element they're assessed on. Assessment drives learning, et cetera. Yeah, it was a good chat last week. And uh, yeah, something I've been thinking about this week too.
0: Mm. And just to build on what you said there about like looking at more than the method, I do think there's something about the method too, where acknowledging that, you know, every, hopefully your study group is not, you know, just white men of a certain demographic which has traditionally been the case and therefore where you have a more diverse study group actually acknowledging that your methodology needs to be more culturally sensitive and of course you want to keep you know a certain amount of things um standardized but there is also something to consider I think in the methodology too I don't know how and you know i am not researcher; I don't know the answers but yeah anyway that rounds that conversation out and um one that I'm sure we will be continuing um, as, as this stuff continues to come up. But for now, let's jump into our first story. First story is, of course, AI. We may as well just not beat around the bush, get straight into it, um, not pretend that, oh, we might talk about it, we might not. We are going to talk about it. But I want to talk about the OpenAI saga this week because it's something that I've not I've not been following. It's been in my sphere of consciousness. I've seen broadly what's happened, but I don't know the details. uh, and I don't know how it's played out. So I would love if one of you, because you both of you are far more invested and interested in this than I am, could give me a bit of a summary of what's been going on. And then I want to talk about what this might actually mean in healthcare specifically or health tech.
2: So, yeah, I was pinned to this from Friday through to, I mean, it it feels like it's still going on. Things are a bit more resolved than they were maybe on Monday or Tuesday this week. But it's been an absolutely fascinating saga. Middle of Friday, US time. OpenAI announced that it was firing its uh, CEO, Sam Altman, uh, one of, I think, or possibly the face of generative AI over the last year. And with it, the, uh, Altman, the CEO, he also sat on the board. Uh, along with president and co-founder Greg Brockman, um, who sat on the board as well. He was, uh, as soon as the news came in that Sam had been fired, uh, Greg also announced that he'd quit. There's a huge amount that came out of that very quickly. And essentially the, the, the top line was that the board claimed that they had received inconsistent communication and that Sam had not necessarily been Totally forthcoming on certain issues with the board, and that was the reason why they um, they removed him so swiftly. There was a lot of fallout in terms of what was uh, what was happening, why this might have been happening, the fact that they did it before the markets closed, um, the fact that they did it without consulting Microsoft, who, despite owning fifty one percent of the company, does not have a board seat due to the really unusual nature of OpenAI's corporate governance.
0: Holy moly!
2: Yeah, um, several days later, after a, a lot of back and forth, there has been a lot here. We've still not heard all the reasons uh, why OpenAI thought that it was time for Sam Altman to go. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of theories. One, and I think the leading one here, though there are multiple other theories out there, is that the board, which is a small board running on an, uh, the sort of original non-profit structure, whose main role is to have that kind of ethical non-profit approach to AI where, and conversely, Sam Altman has obviously been doing a great job of turning what was originally a non-profit into a very much a for-profit commercially driven organization, uh, releasing new products. And the board had seen all of the really interesting developments that OpenAI had done at their dev day and seen that and had started to think that they were losing control of the non-profit aspect, and that's why they got rid of them. Lots of back and forth over the weekend, uh, including hiring an interim CEO, firing that interim CEO, hiring a more permanent CEO who lasted 24 hours. All the while, Microsoft offered Sam Altman and pretty much anyone from OpenAI who didn't want to be there a job at Microsoft in their AI division. So I think there was clearly a challenge there in terms of maintaining OpenAI's status when half the organization and all of that expertise... would would be going to Microsoft, which swiftly followed 24 hours later by the news that Sam Altman was being reinstated, Greg Brockman was being reinstated. Neither of them will be joining the board yet. There is uh, an insistence that they may be coming back Um, and that the board itself, uh, including most of those who had been, uh, who were, I guess, key players within the removal, uh, were going to be replaced by a board that included Twitter's ex-chairman, and several other key figures, all of whom definitely seem to be clear voices, clear, interesting, useful corporate voices, but very much moving away from that slightly n- more non-profit academic. There's a great, uh, in, in in this week's article, how the shakeup of OpenAI underscores the need for AI standards in healthcare. There's a great term, the guardrails, basically. And I think the guardrails are now possibly slightly off OpenAI. And this is where All of the kind of the soap opera drama of the last week kind of feeds into a much bigger conversation, which is as AI takes off and generative AI in particular, where is it going? You know, what are the guardrails that stop it from becoming uh, a danger to humanity? We've had a lot of conversation over that over the last year with all of the CEOs and key figures who came together and said, no, we need to put pause on things and uh, make sure that it, it doesn't, it doesn't, that we don't lose control of the development of AI. Obviously, we might, probably not there yet. Let's, let's, you know, from a really rational point of view, probably not there yet. But it's fair to say the defining organization in the last year of generative AI development has been OpenAI. It has always had that sort of conflict between its corporate and nonprofit structure, or commercial and nonprofit structure. And now it feels like it's very much taken those non-profit guardrails off and we're heading towards some more commercial rapid development. I don't know if unchecked is quite the right word because if that feels like a like a naysayer a, a doom doom approach to it all but certainly something has changed in the dynamic of how AI is, uh, g- and generative AI is being developed and I think if 2023 was the year we saw that uh, saw those questions being raised 2024 is definitely when we're going to get at least some answers to that and some uh, thoughts on where, where next so that's that's only half the story It was coming out like nothing on earth saturday sunday monday tuesday new story new reasoning every every day but that's that's where we are on the saga
0: well that is giving very much succession vibes and actually has successfully brought more drama in less than a week than all the seasons of succession together and not least the fact that they've actually beat uh, UK ministers in shortest tenure possible, almost. Um, So that's pretty (laughs) impressive too. But it's kind of mind-blowing, but also sort of worrying at the same time. But I, I mean, my question would be like, I assume if Sam Altman was also taken off the board, then he lost his equity stake. And is that then... Is that the bit that's also up for discussion with him, his reinstatement to to the board, do we think?
2: So this is one of the most entertaining parts about the entire saga. <laughs> and when Sam Altman was, remo- was removed, he uh, posted on Twitter what seems like a bold statement, but turns out to be a massive joke, which is if he goes off on one against OpenAI or anyone there, then the board should feel free to pursue him for his total equity stake and have make sure that that's removed to him. The irony being, of course, on this, that Sam Altman has never had an equity stake no way. in OpenAI. He's <laughs> led to an $80 billion valuation. And again, it's a unique factor there, kind of corporate governance and uh, his relationship that he was challenged by Congress at one stage. Um, you have a lot of equity and, and you've got a lot to get out of this. And he said, I have no equity. Uh, and they said, well, why do you do it? And he said, because I love it. Mm. Wow. And I think... That's that's possibly what made it so much of a an easy leverage for him. Is that it's it's very clearly not a. Well, I mean, it's obviously financially uh, dr- driven that he does the role, but it hasn't affected his equity, and uh, definitely wasn't yeah. part of the negotiations in the end.
0: That's mind boggling. That's a really, really strange structure. Really strange, where you have Microsoft with fifty one percent equity, no board seat, someone on the board with no equity. James, what, I'm sure you've been following this very closely. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I have. And I can't really add too much on the description of it from what you said. The question then becomes like, you know, on this podcast, you know, the question becomes, what does this mean for healthcare? I've had quite a few conversations on this, you know, with Harvinder on this week's Health Tech Podcast episode. I, I spoke at length with him about what generative ai means the pace of change and i think what this open ai latest saga what hugh's trying to say here is that with those guardrails coming down it's almost like the brakes don't work anymore and then we end up hurtling towards these new technologies harvin and i were joking that you you sleep on this stuff for 12 hours and you've missed like the latest load of updates to to chat gbt like it's it's crazy just how quickly this stuff is moving on. And I think that provides opportunity in healthcare as well as, of course, the obvious things that are more scary about that. The opportunity comes from, well, if we are hurtling towards new technologies and that technology frontier is just getting, you know, further and further more advanced, then the entrepreneurs that can keep up with it Especially the the not the bad actors, but the good actors that are keeping up with it and have the morality and everything to create good things. Because goodness, goodness knows there are there are more lucrative areas to use large language models and generative AI that you'd hope would attract more of the bad actors. The people trying to do it in healthcare actually, for those that can keep up, and Harvinder, you know, is one of them. They're sitting here looking at these updates and then minutes later they're creating something that they only could have dreamed of three years ago in Harvinder's case. You know, he accelerated his product roadmap three years overnight just because they released custom GPTs on on, on ChatGBT. So for those that can keep up, this is a huge opportunity. And not to say that what's gone on isn't weird and strange and all the rest of it, but there is opportunity there and it's good to sort of balance balance the argument to just say that hold on a minute like let's just try and take this for what it is at least in part and go okay well if if we are just going to keep going with the commercial nature of open ai and that part of their business if that becomes the main player well at least there are good people out there trying to harness that in health now the obvious counter to this is the speed at which the commercial side of open ai can go forwards provides somewhat of a monopoly risk uh, a large company monopoly of microsoft and other big tech maybe in a situation where they own a generation defining i was gonna say technology but it's almost like a movement isn't it like they 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 own the infrastructure on which every bit of new technology sits with custom GVDs and the rest of it and everything that can come forward so you end up in a a a relatively worrying situation there that for healthcare, the more that's built on top of big tech platforms, the more that we are essentially at the mercy of big big tech and with our fax machines and our bleeps and our old school technology, we can run healthcare without them. We can run healthcare with people and some heavy plastic and radio waves and we can get away with that and that's a relatively secure place to be in healthcare because it allows it to be human in a huge degree now it also allows it to be incredibly inefficient and incredibly difficult to do and incredibly difficult to keep up with the rising expectation of what healthcare actually is and we need big tech there we need to work with big tech to do this we need to build things on top of large language models to deliver products to healthcare we need all of this the concerning thing for me that as the commercial side of open ai accelerates with what we've seen and overshadows the Uh, open source side of it we're all at the mercy of big tech and that's never a pleasant place to be that you could have a cyber attack and render healthcare down I don't like the thought of that and perhaps I'm conflating a lot there but and that's just one specific use case but that's the bit that makes me more uncomfortable um, but that's not to say there isn't a heck of a lot of opportunity in the meantime.
0: Well, watch this space. Because it sounds like well, lots could change in the, by the time we come back around to next week's episode. Um, but definitely some opportunity there. We just have to watch and wait and be guided by healthcare experts like Harvinda, as you say, James, who is in in this stuff, living and breathing it, um, and doing it in a way that fits within the moral guardrails and impact-driven guardrails that healthcare exists within. All right, so on to our next story. We often spend a fair bit of time on this podcast critically appraising what is going on here in the UK in the NHS and how well uh, it is integrating technology and serving patients and that kind of thing but it's it's been a big week uh, and in some places some calls for celebration which is always always pleasing to see but We cannot uh, talk about that part yet without referencing the fact that finally we do have the results from the FDP tender that has now been announced. Palantir were successful. Um, That was something I have not been under a rock for. I did hear that, although I got very confused because of the previous leaks a few weeks ago where I just thought it was announced and I couldn't understand why no one was really talking about it that much until I realised that it wasn't the formal announcement, uh, which has obviously happened this week. So if you want to know more about the FDP, what that means, Palantir's involvement Uh, And if, like me, you didn't know and understand all of that stuff, we have a very special episode from a couple of weeks ago with Joe Talora from the HSJ, who really gave us that download on FDP for Dummies. Dummy is me. I am the dummy. Uh, But it's a good one. So if you want to understand more about that, then definitely go and have a listen. But the big cause for celebration this week is... Very uncharacteristically for the NHS, they have met one of their targets ahead of the deadline. And that target is for 90% of all NHS trusts to have an EPR, so an electronic patient record system installed and in use. That deadline was for December 2023. So by a hair, they have made that deadline. And that is really impressive and definitely cause for celebration knowing the you know stress strain challenges that um, trust in particular but the whole of the NHS is facing so yeah I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on uh, that exciting news from an NHS perspective this week.
2: I can only double down on I think this is a true cause for celebration I I don't think there's a huge amount to say beyond that but that, you know, we're so used to targets being missed because, you know, digitization and transformation of getting patient record systems into hospitals and getting past some of the, you know, getting past some of the challenges that have prevented that is, is a really, it's, an, it's a massive task. It's truly massive. The, the next 10% to get up to 100% is, the target is over a year and a half away to v- fill that final 10% gap. And one of the infrastructure agencies in government has said it, that that will be an almost impossible task to meet. But you know, given that, given how many of healthcare transformation projects at the national scale do take forever, they do take a really long time, and then that's not that's not because no people aren't trying. People are trying really hard, and there's great work being done to make that happen. There is just a huge amount of resistance and a huge amount of barriers to get through. And given how many, I think, you know, a few months back, we reported that there wasn't a single um, project on DHSCs, that's the UK Department of Health and Social Care's risk register that wasn't um, red or amber with serious risk attached. I think we really do have to shout out the success that gets to this 90% level. We do criticise a lot. It's very easy to be critical of you know, national projects of this scale but this is a this is a big marker to have hit and I think without wanting to say you know job done it's a really positive news story to come out of the NHS over the last couple of weeks.
0: Lovely it's nice when it's not all doom and gloom. So on to our third story today. Toku's AI platform predicts heart conditions by scanning inside your eye. How? How is this happening? James, tell me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So they've raised $8 million Series A and are making a bit of a splash in TechCrunch about this. How? Well, basically, there is a link between um, glaucoma, eye disease, and cardiovascular disease. We know that. We've known that for a long time. But companies like Toku are essentially scanning the retina. They're looking at signals from the blood vessels in the eye and they can calculate heart disease risk, uh, hypertension, high cholesterol in about 20 seconds. Um, It also integrates with the sort of existing retinal image cameras. So um, the diagnostics means it can feasibly just become part of the regular routine eye exam. Uh, So it's pretty exciting. Um, I had a look at some of the FDA stuff about it. They've been given breakthrough device status by the FDA, which is a very interesting thing uh, because one might uh, assume that by looking at some of the uh, some of the things that have claimed this, that they are shouting about getting FDA clearance, that that isn't the case. They've been given breakthrough device status. And for people that are wondering what breakthrough device status actually means, because I have had a look, uh, it means that once granted... You can interact with the FDA to get better feedback or quicker feedback on your device development. Uh, You can have sprint discussions. You can request discussion on a data development plan. You blah, 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 blah. So, what it means is you've been sort of earmarked by the FDA as probably going to get clearance uh, and at they really want you to get clearance because it's good for healthcare or however they make that decision. Haven't looked at that specifically, but it does, it does put you, um, a sort of teacher's pet of the FDA. Uh, if I can call it that by the looks of things. Um, so they've been given that, which is exciting. If they do get clearance though, it will be the first of its kind to the U S market and it will be integrated into retinal cameras and that kind of thing. Then in the U S it can be done in eye care clinics, primary care pharmacies, all of that sort of stuff so one of the advantages of this i guess is because if they're calculating high blood pressure cholesterol uh, yeah just general heart disease risk as well and it takes 20 seconds the advantage of that the fact that they've got according to the breakthrough device status uh comparable accuracy um to current sta- current tests and standards of of other things that are doing this it's pretty good in terms of making healthcare more efficient um it's pretty good at the patient experience side of things that you can get this stuff analyzed very quickly so i'll tell you what i'm all for it i think it sounds awesome it sounds very star trek um you know get, get your eye scanned uh and just be told what your heart disease risk is, what your cholesterol is, and what your blood pressure is. Why not? I think it's great.
2: Yeah, I think this is a a really interesting piece, and it fits in with a lot of the other thing, a lot of other stories that we've sort of talked about over the last few months as well. And it's it's making me wonder. Uh, we've referenced it slightly in Pigeon, which is you know, there's thing, there's companies like Nico Health who are doing that all full body scan thing. Um, which will be a a sort of fairly consumer approach. You go in and get your full body scan and it tells you, and it's this big device. And and you mentioned Star Trek Their Their promo photo for that full body health scanner is very Star Trek. Um, But a lot of conditions, diabetes, heart disease, uh, you can tell, via looking at the eye. And I think we're developing a lot, a lot of companies are working on technologies that do that. There's a reference in this TechCrunch article, MidiWale, a South Korea-based startup, is also looking at an AI-based non-invasive retina scan to diagnose cardiac and kidney disorders. So, you know, we're, we're broadening the reach of disorders that can um, be diagnosed this way. Then on the flip side, there's a lot of early stage work going on on what you can diagnose through the voice, whether that's um, neurological disorders, um, I think there was even one that detected diabetes via the voice. So I do wonder whether whether we can stake our claim now. Whether ten years from now, your your optician um, is going to be your your key point for interventional healthcare and that that early intervention place. And I think whether as we get to you know really big focus on prevention and early intervention in healthcare, whether there's the, the eye and the voice, the, the retina and the voice are going to be two of the most important um, aspects of, of healthcare. Um, just in terms of that, you know, identifying these diseases and getting early intervention for a whole range of conditions. We make a good point and
1: actually it's pushing it into the community, isn't it? And I think that's the interesting thing. If, if what we're expecting is prevention to happen and we want prevention to happen in the community or early, early intervention, then yes, we need measures by which we can do these things in the community. The thought that we can do the same as we've always done in the community isn't going to work, and actually we do need these new measures of doing so. I think the difference with this versus the likes of um, a full-body scan is that this, this has specificity. This is specifically for certain things, and actually for, for those people who want to assess these things specifically, they can get this sort of test. And I like that. I think most clinicians, when they see the kind of, you know, echo full body scan, I think it's called echo, wasn't it? The the like thing anyway. Well, Nico, yeah. So when you when you see full body scan, every clinician will just think, oh no, you're just gonna f- you're just gonna find things that weren't causing a problem that then need intervention. And when you're a fee-for-service healthcare system, the morality creeps into your mind and you're like, oh, and it all just feels profit-driven. It all just feels not very nice because it's easy if you're the full-body scan company to then upsell you the lumps and bumps removal, to then upsell you the this, the that, the, the other, the insurance that covers you against all these things. And FIFA, so it just it doesn't feel good there. I think the what I like about these sorts of tests is that they are very specific. You know, voice detection for anxiety, depression, retinal scanning for cholesterol, hypertension, heart disease. These are all things we want to actually pick up that we're looking for for either a reason or that have a justification for why they're screened i like all of that i can't justify why full body scans are a good idea i I just can't do that right now with the information that i have um but this sort of stuff i love and actually by enabling technologies like this we can move prevention into the community and actually we can start to save healthcare from the impending doom of the financial bust that it's likely to have if we just try and keep doing the same old. And back to ideas and feedback, right? Imagine being the first person that said oh, what if I looked at the back of your eye to detect blood pressure? Like, ha, 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 ha. The way we detect blood pressure is we use mercury and we use mercury in a, in a vertical cylinder. And actually I'm going to slowly release the mercury <laughs> through a cuff. And actually I can hear that on a stethoscope. Like looking at it behind the eye, that's ludicrous. Um, yes, be open to new ideas, kids.
0: Well, coming soon to a spec savers near you. And uh, (laughs) I have to say, this one unexpectedly actually hits quite close to home for me. So, uh, you know, heart disease is something that affects a lot of people. And I think, you know, all of us can name people who um, we know that is likely affected, but. For me personally, a couple of weeks ago, my nan was actually admitted to hospital. She had some breathing problems um, and they attributed it to asthma, changed her inhaler and discharged her. Less than a week later, she was then taken into hospital in an ambulance with chest pain, having spent years almost with lots of different symptoms. And as a consequence, actually had a heart attack, had to have stents put in and now so many of those symptoms have actually cleared up following that treatment but it was it's been missed for years that there may be this ongoing issue with her heart um, and has been responsible seemingly for lots and lots of symptoms that have been attributed to other things whereas she's always going to the opticians she's got problems with her eyes anyway um and I, I guess I to get older so you know she's frequently going to a space like an optician's and so the idea that actually a that I could have been picked up far far earlier and also the fact that you know clearly you know she's been admitted to a hospital that's under pressure have missed something not done some diagnostic tests I'm not sure and attributed it to something that's very different that has then resulted in her having to have two cents put in her heart you know I like this kind of thing is so exciting and you can really see genuinely the impact that it it could have I guess the the big challenge is how do we take it from there to a model where we can bring it genuinely onto the high streets and 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 get people benefiting from at scale and there has to be some kind of commercially viable model that goes around now obviously more research but I think it's really nice when we hear stories like this that hit so close to home because it really gets you excited and makes you feel hopeful around issues and problems that can potentially be quite frightening. But as with anything, you know, the earlier earlier you can identify it, the earlier you can fix it, and the, the, less, the less problematic it is for everybody. So well done. Well done to them. Well, oh, there have been some really exciting and unusually encouraging stories this week i think it's the positivity that we have all needed and some excitement with everything that has been happening with OpenAI and continues to happen so watch this space we'll try to bring you an update next week and in the meantime enjoy the rest of your health tech news and your weeks bye-bye